Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research, discuss how these solutions work in practice, and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. Faster, cheaper, immediately, and in luxury. These have been the guiding principles for transportation for decades. The result? Our transportation networks generate billions of tons of greenhouse gases, billions of wasted hours in congestion, and a lot of noise pollution. Transportation produces 15% of the world's greenhouse gases, but it doesn't have to. Our work on Project Jordan shows how we can help reduce climate change through our transportation choices, and in particular, through increasing load factors and technology and fuel choices. I'm very pleased today to welcome Ryan Allard to the podcast. Ryan is a transportation analyst with a broad knowledge of transportation systems and their impact on our climate. His specialities include intercity transport, competitive issues in transportation, and cooperation among transportation systems. Ryan's a senior fellow on the Drawdown team focusing on transportation solutions, and he also worked as a senior data modeler. So thank you very much, Ryan, for joining us today uh, for the Drawdown Agenda podcast. Thank you for having me. So, Ryan, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got involved in Project Drawdown? Yes. So, my background is in transportation systems. So, I've done research on a wide range of transportation systems, focusing on the integration of different types. That's called intermodality. Integration of transportation systems to provide a seamless service for travelers and for goods. I've also done research on aviation. My initial degrees were in, or mission degree, excuse me, was in aeronautical and aerospace engineering. And so that work contributed towards supporting Project Drawdown in basically sustainable transportation systems. Right? So it's a key part of this. I also do modeling for Project Drawdown in terms of the underlying structure of all Drawdown models as the senior data modeler. Brilliant. Now, your special area of interest is transport, and you spent a considerable amount of time modeling and researching, analyzing the implications of the carbon dioxide emissions of of various transport systems and the possibilities going forward. Now, when you started to do this research, um, how much did we know about the impact of transport? It's something that's on people's minds a lot. We hear people talk about it a lot. Um, what did we know before you started doing this research? So transportation is a very important sector for, tra- for climate change, uh, for reducing climate change. So we know that climate change is caused by greenhouse gases, right? Chiefly among them being carbon dioxide, but additionally other gases like methane and even water vapor. So globally, transportation contributes about depending on where, which country you're in and which which year you're measuring, on the order of about a fifth or a quarter of all the greenhouse gases that humans emit on on an annual basis. So transportation is pretty important if we want to really get our our hands on this 
problem of, of climate change, right? So it's a pretty significant portion of it. Not only that, unlike many of your other sectors, uh, especially electricity generation and energy generation, transportation has been increasing its emissions annually, right? And that's because it's a very difficult sector to decarbonize, and it is uh, a sector that is growing in demand worldwide. So our research at Project Drawdown has shown that transportation is an important sector, although if you look at the numbers, the total may not be as high as, uh, the total amount of reduction that the transportation sector can contribute may not be as high as, say, the electricity generation sector, but it's still a very important sector for achieving that point when carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere begin to decline, or what we call drawdown. Yes, that's very interesting. And I, I guess at the heart of this is the connection between transportation and economic growth, I suppose. It's, you, certainly you can see it in terms of the shipping and I guess also in terms of uh, the wealthier people uh, travel more, fly more. So it's deeply connected with what most governments want to do, which is to grow their economies. That's exactly right. Transportation is an economic activity, right? So we travel to do something, we travel to we send goods via transportation systems. And so it's, uh, it's something that increases as wealth increases. And so you see a lot of travel, you know, you measure it in terms of the distance people move, you know, you think of kilometers of travel or passenger kilometers of travel. You see a lot of that in richer countries. And as countries uh, get more wealthy, the population generally increases the amount of traveling, both on the ground, in the air, and certainly in some countries where it's possible over the water. Absolutely, absolutely. So what overall were the findings here, if you can summarize at, you know, at, at a very high level? Um, I guess it, it was surprising to see that in the top 25 solutions in drawdown, transport doesn't feature. It's, and yet it's something we hear a lot of talk about and it's something that people think about a lot. Um, what are the th- two or three biggest impacts that, that you see in drawdown? Yes. Certainly we were, we were knowledgeable that transportation solutions should be on the list. Right? We know that they would be somewhere on the list. We just would not play away. We were not clear of the ranking. And that's one of the benefits of the type of project we did, you know, where we kind of ranked solutions. So we were surprised that transportation solutions were not you know, in the top 20, as you mentioned, 25 or so. But we were not surprised that electric vehicles came out as one of the top solutions. That tends to be the solution that is discussed a lot, both in the media and in scientific research, as one of the key solutions to climate change. Now, we know that electric vehicles are chiefly currently an urban transportation solution, and that's a lot, that's a sector, that's the area of movement of people that has the largest amount of contribution towards. Uh, carbon dioxide generation. So that was a big surprise for us that um, you know that it came out there, but that was number one. And we believe that the importance of the numbers of people that that number of people that each vehicle, each transportation vehicle take takes when uh, it's moving. That's called the load factor. So think of it as the percentage of seats filled in a train or in a car or in a plane. That ended up being a very important uh, aspect of the solution, right? So you can think of this as 
because the vehicles are very big, very weighty, they take a lot of energy to move a plane or a train or a car, you want to have more many people inside that car, that inside the train when it's moving. And so that became a very important factor in the modeling. So that was a, a we knew it was important, but we didn't realize how important it was. Right, right. So looking at electric vehicles, what is the impact that you see by 2050? So the impact is measured in the total amount of carbon dioxide that can be avoided from the from from emission, right? So from release in the atmosphere. And we measure this in terms of because it's over a large amount of time, about 13 years, we measure this in terms of billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent, right? And this is carbon dioxide equivalent because there are other greenhouse gases that we Converts in equivalent units of carbon dioxide, such as methane, right? And so, when you look at the, the top solutions, we see on the order of about 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent avoided by electric vehicles, right? So, this is again not in the top 25, but it is a significant amount over 30 years, and it is an amount that has a, con- a very important contribution towards. The, uh, the achievement of drawdown. Other solutions that follow it quickly are, for instance, ships or, or ocean efficiency, which is a wide range of technologies, honestly, that can be applied to shipping, which is freight shipping, moving of goods across the world in order to increase that efficiency and to reduce the fuel consumption. And the shipping industry is pretty important one worldwide. I mean, it takes something like 90% of all the goods worldwide. So it's pretty important for uh, for reducing emissions also. So that was the number two. And I'll just go briefly into number three, and then we can discuss some others as you, as you desire. Mass transit we found to be a very important solution also on the order of about seven or so billion tons of carbon dioxide, a billion with a B. And... Uh, that's a solution that most people have come in contact with. So that's something that we may be able to discuss. Yes, yes. Now, the electric vehicles, is this the assessment of the reduction in carbon dioxide associated with moving from fossil fuels to uh, electricity? And to what extent does it take into account uh, or how, how do you think about the actual uh, manufacture of electric vehicles? Yes. So... We, dis- we separate those two components into direct and indirect emission. Right? So a direct emission here is I'm using the vehicle, I'm using whatever the technology is, and as I'm using it, I'm producing emissions. Right? So the more I use it, the more emissions I produce. Right? And the indirect emissions are emissions related to the production of the vehicle and the, move- the, the delivery of the vehicle to the final consumer. Right? So if the vehicle is being produced in China and then shipped to Europe, for instance, then all the emissions up to the point before it is pushed, it is taken home by the consumer, by the final driver, those are indirect emissions. Right? So we include both of those in our modeling and we include emissions related to the fuel consumption of com- internal combustion engine vehicles. Right? So these are conventional vehicles that have been around for decades, right? These are the ones that most people drive currently. So the idea here is to look at if there was a switch, a major switch from internal combustion vehicles, engine vehicles, so conventional vehicles, to electric vehicles. These are battery electric as well as plug-in, plug-in hybrid vehicles. What would be the impact? 
And of course, you need to make some assumptions there about what is the consumption, what is the emissions of the grid, what are the emissions of the grid, right? So are we talking about a grid that uses a lot of renewable energy, renewable power? Are we talking about a grid that uses a lot of coal? And so we use the global average for that, right? If we get down to a country-level analysis, if we look only at the UK, only at the US, for instance, we may get different results. But this is a global-level analysis, so it's first level for the project drawdown research. And so we're comparing the use of fuel, both petrol and diesel, to the use of electricity for powering vehicles. And these are the results we get. Right, right. Now, there has been tremendous momentum. It, it certainly seems like there's tremendous momentum. And some of the biggest car manufacturers are talking about moving, you know, massively to electric vehicles. And obviously, you've got the pioneers and very uh, innovative organizations uh, on the face of it, at least, uh, uh, like Elon Musk and so forth. But a lot of uh, getting a lot of attention, I think a lot of investment. And yet, I guess at the same time, you've got the current political administration in the United States <laughs> trying to. To, uh, slow down this move as well um, but it is quite uh, remarkable the the pace I guess you know we've had fuel cars vehicles around for so long and suddenly to see this uh, scale of change yes it is certainly so one of the large uh, I suppose um, pushes towards that is the use of batteries right so battery research is, is has ramped up significantly worldwide because the company or the group that can create a very high capacity battery at very low cost can see a lot of value, can create a lot of value worldwide, right? Certainly in electric vehicles, but even in other things like in electric bikes, right? So there's a lot of push there and there's a lot of potential because I think globally, the, you know, let's say the movers and shakers have realized that the potential is huge worldwide because there's a lot of increase in use of private vehicles. And so that's one area of research, but also the, the pushing from the policy side is very important. So we've seen a lot of incentivization of the development of electric vehicles by setting up fuel standards, fuel emission standards. And one of the largest, uh, I suppose, most efficient ways of doing that for a car company is producing electric vehicles, right? Because it tends to be linked to the total number of fuels that manufacturers are producing. And as we, I mean, there, there are two major streams of vehicles, right? You have electric vehicles now, but you also have, as I said before, fuel vehicles, whether diesel uh, or petrol. And so diesel and petrol, there's a lot of development there, but it's becoming more and more difficult to extract fuel efficiency improvements in conventional vehicles. And so a larger jump in that efficiency improvement comes from using electric vehicles instead. And so that's one of the reasons why manufacturers worldwide are investing in that. And of course, because there's a trend, there's a kind of a, an attraction to EVs now, there's a lot of media about it, like you hinted at. So the electric vehicle companies are growing in stature. You know, Tesla is one example that's kind of competing with these traditional companies. And so the other companies kind of need to compete. They need to produce vehicles that allow them to stay in the game effectively, right? And so there's a lot of interest worldwide because of all these factors coming together. Oh, but electric vehicles are still a bit more expensive generally than conventional. And so there's a way to go. A key part of that higher cost is in the, the battery cost. And so as the battery prices trend downwards, as we've been seeing, 
And as research and investment in reducing that battery price increases, we should see some closer parity between the price the, the prices of conventional and electric vehicles. And so when that happened, when that price parity happens, we just see a lot more adoption of electric vehicles as in the long run they're simpler, they're cheaper, and they of course help the environment and help the climate. Yes, absolutely. And to what extent do you take into account the falling costs for batteries? Um, in, I know in some areas that in renewable energies, for example, they continue to beat uh, any of the forecasts in terms of you know how, how the, the price curve changes over time. Do you make assumptions about this? And presumably, it, as you say, because they are, interact and play in so many different parts of the economy, potentially, um, you know, there could be massive scale here. Obviously, you know, what China is doing here is, is tremendously important important so is that something that you had to look at as well absolutely yes that's a key part of the the the, the driver of adoption right so there are a lot of financial incentives that are being used in certain countries to encourage adoption but the reason why you need them is because you need to get over that battery cost but all the investment is leading to battery reduction and so what we did was look at the learning rate right the learning rate is basically you know a combination of the investment, the research, the, the general increased understanding of how to produce batteries and how to make more efficient batteries and make higher capacity batteries, that is taking place, right? So there's a rate at which production of batteries reduces the cost of batteries. And so using that historical rate, we projected for the future that batteries can be reduced in cost even greater. So there may be others that say, All right, we're, we're, we're guessing that prices may be reduced based on certain other assumptions, but we use historical data on how that learning rate can continue. And we use that to say that batteries can actually be reduced in price. And so I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I believe the parity with uh, conventional vehicles is reached in the 2030s, so maybe late 2020s. Right, right. Very interesting. Now, you mentioned also load factors. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know there are various, uh, we see the sharing economy now and uh, various uh, interlinked ways of traveling. How is that going to change and why is that important? Ah, yes. So uh, one of the best ways of thinking about it is with a private car. All right. So think of the weight of a car that you you know, a regular car, a conventional car that you might own, we're talking maybe about 1,500 kilograms here, right? And the weight of a human being, you know, let's assume that it's around the order of maybe 70, 80 kilograms. And so it's a very small percentage of the weight of the car, right? So most of the energy, most of the fuel or electricity that you're using to move a car, an individual car, is just in moving the metal and the plastic and the leather and the tires, etc. And so you are a small part of that. If you can have an additional person with you when you're traveling, now this is not necessarily increasing the number of trips that are made, but putting trips together, right? So instead of traveling with two cars, the two of you traveling in one car, you're effectively increasing the load or increasing the load factor in that car, right? So the percentage of seats that are filled in that car. And you're increasing the number of actual people traveling in that one car with the same 1,500 kilograms. And so what you see basically is that you're becoming more efficient as you do that, right? You're adding more people in the same car. And so if you increase it to three persons or four persons or even five persons, what you're doing is you're reducing the total amount of metal you need to carry for the same number of people. 
right? Instead of using forecast, using one. And so that's basically what load factors is. What load factors can be defined as, right? It applies basically to every mode of transportation, right? So if you think of aircraft or planes, airlines have become very efficient at filling their seats because they understand this load factor concept. So when you travel in a low-cost carrier, you tend to see very full flights. When you travel even on a conventional aircraft, conventional airline, you also see very full flights because they've learned to some extent from the low-cost carriers, right? So that matters a lot. When you think about the amount of fuel consumed by any mode or any type of transportation, it can be helped significantly by having more people in there because you need fewer actual vehicles. Again, whether it's cars or, or planes or ships, that is a very efficient way to do it. Now, when you compare that to, say, using a more efficient technology, such as going from fuel to electricity, we can see a much larger impact simply by having more people in cars than by switching from fuel to electricity. Really? So, yeah. That's very yeah. interesting. So because the, the, there are, you know, I've seen various forecasts for growth in car sharing and, and related uh, services like that. And, and this really matters. Exactly, yes. And so car sharing, again, let me, let me be very clear that car sharing is different to ride sharing, right? Car sharing is you have a car, other friends of yours or maybe non-friends, people who you meet through the internet or through certain apps, they don't have a car, they want access to a car for a period of time, so they will be able to use your car when you don't need your car. Let's say you're at work for eight hours, right? So your car is just sitting in a parking lot, so they use it. Now, if you drive your car alone to work, you leave it in a parking lot, and it's used by somebody who's using the same car sharing app during those eight hours, but they drive alone, then you've reduced the number of cars, but you haven't increased the efficiency of the use of that car. Because there's still one person in that car. Yes, yes, However, yes. However, yes. ride sharing is where you are driving to work and you're taking your friend with you to work, right? Yes. So instead of that friend using another car, you're in, they're in the same car with you. And that's more efficient. That certainly reduces fuel consumption. And so ride sharing and car sharing need to be uh, defined differently. However, with ride sharing, the impact could be significant for reducing fuel consumption, absolutely. And so when you think of the move from Uber to Uber pool or from lift to lift line, that's encouraging ride sharing, right? Encouraging more efficient use of the space in the vehicle, right? Now, of course, from an individual perspective, your trip might be slightly longer, right? It might be more driving in order to pick up the additional person. If you're in an Uber, for instance, it may take a bit more time, but they incentivize that by reducing the post, right? That's why Uber gets you to choose the Uber pool option. Also, the overall distance driven by the cars, and therefore the overall efficiency is different, right? Yes. And so that's why it's much more valuable to have uh, more people in your vehicle than even to have your vehicle used more times in the day by others. Now, right. of course, car sharing is very important still, right? Because there are estimates suggesting that a car is used only maybe 5% of the time. Most of the time it's parked somewhere, either at your home or in your parking lot, at work or somewhere where it's not being used. And so car sharing actually is very valuable for increasing the efficiency overall of the car fleet. Yes. In terms of yes. efficiency of individual trips and using less fuel for people move in the same direction, more or less in the same trip, ride sharing makes a lot of sense. 
Thanks, Ryan, for the clarification there. Now, I don't know whether anyone's done this or whether this be a figure that you'd have to hand, but the amount of carbon dioxide associated with actually manufacturing a car compared to, on average, the carbon dioxide over the life cycle of a car on an average, you know, uh, mileage. Has somebody done that calculation? Because what, as you say, you're pointing at two different things, because if less cars need to be, you know, uh, manufactured, that is is going to have a, a significant impact as well, as you say, as well as the the, the fact that less journeys are going to be made. Yes, certainly. So there have been some res- has been some research on this, but of course it must depend on the amount of usage you assume. Yes. Right? Yes. You know, people, for instance, in the United States, drive a lot more. Yes. Than the average car owner of, of say the uh, um, Europe or say Latin America, right? So if you look at a global average, I believe the ratio is something like ten to one. Now that that number is of course dependent on also what type of car you do, because um, some vehicles take more energy and take more, uh, we produce more emissions, right? So if you're producing batteries, for instance, uh, it's an electric vehicle, the batteries could have a slight increase in the indirect emissions portion, but overall in the direct emissions, there's a huge reduction. And so overall, electric vehicles are actually, they produce less carbon dioxide over the entire lifetime. Right? Yes. But the production side could be higher. Yes, that's interesting. Now, can we talk about shipping? Because I know there's been a, a, just a tremendous increase in maritime traffic over the last couple of decades and more than you would expect, I think, from the underlying growth in the global economy. Yes. Shipping, as I said, is, the, is critical to the global economy. It is moving, the shipping industry is moving something like 90% of all the global trade that we enjoy daily. And so shipping has grown tremendously and it's because it's the most efficient way to move goods worldwide, right? So we can, we have other options, you know, we can over land, we can use trucks and trains, over air, we can use aircraft, but shipping is simply the most efficient because we can stack a lot of good into goods into the same ship. So shipping has grown a lot and currently it contributes Around maybe eight or nine hundred nine million nine hundred million tons of carbon dioxide right, annually, and so that's comparable to aviation alone. Aviation, which is mainly for moving people, but also for moving freight, uh, especially high value freight or time sensitive freight. And so, shipping is is a sector that needs to manage its emissions, and it's a sector that's also growing as the world economy grows. Right. So. Looking forward then, what are the big changes in shipping that you predict or based your, your model on? So the shipping industry has come together after many years of, of, of noting its importance to the climate change uh, issue and has discussed certain changes to, to basically how it operates, right? How, how, we under, how they understand the impact of shipping on the climate, right? One part of that is measuring the efficiency of ships, and there's been international agreements signed to define specifically how they will define the efficiency of ships, right? Because it may seem like a very simple thing, but that international understanding is critical for understanding what steps they will be willing to take as an industry or as a combination of individual actors, right? Because these are big companies sometimes, right? what steps they'll be willing to take and what steps government might mandate that they take 
in order to reduce the impact on emissions, right? So part of that is on the designer ships and part of that is on the operational management of shipping. And so what we may see over time is that some key steps such as what is called slow steaming um, will be adopted. Slow steaming basically is, as the name suggests, moving more slowly, right? So moving the ships at a lower speed because of the science of how waves move and how water moves around the ship, that actually has a huge impact on the amount of energy it takes to move the ships. So there's a trade-off there. We noticed that slow steaming happened in 2008 and 2009, right after the global financial crisis, because that was a way for ships to save money, for the shipping companies to save money. However, that resulted, of course, in a delay in the delivery of goods. So that trade-off is something that ships have been deciding for themselves we may see in the future that that may become mandated by international agencies such as the International Maritime Organization that slow steaming be adopted. That is actually part of our modeling also. The designer ships, however, it's a bit more difficult for adoption of improved design because ships have very long lifetimes. Right? So we're looking at sometimes 30 or 40 years before a ship needs to be replaced, where you can be taking your maintenance crews out there and doing what is necessary to keep the ship alive and keep it moving and relatively efficient, but after 40 years when it finally needs to be retired. And so because of that long lifetime, it's more difficult to change the designer ships. However, what we can do is take certain practices that adjust, maybe you can think of them as retrofitting ships to make them more efficient. So some of those technologies which currently are a bit expensive, they're not exactly financially financially attractive for the ship, shipping companies. Those may be invested to invested in by international agencies and others to encourage adoption and reduce the cost and to increase the, um, the adoption. Now what we might see as a result of that is that the time it takes to ship goods worldwide might increase slightly and the cost might increase slightly as a result of these changes. Now, these are not predictions because it's difficult to know what's going to happen in the future. There may be many things that affect that, but we can think that the changes that the shipping industry will take will have an impact on the goods we buy and then the cost of even services that we may experience as we have our daily lives. Well, it's very interesting you mentioned the downturn in 2008 and some of the implications of that. Because as you say, this the kind of just-in-time consumer economy we live in where you want your avocados in the supermarket today and, and having, you know, the fresh and not having to wait for things and, and, and so forth is part of the consumer lifestyle but actually um, has a cost. Exactly, yeah. So we can think of it as on the extreme, extreme end, the movement of goods by plea, right? That's even more carbon intensive than ships. And so we use that mode when we want goods right away, right? So that's typically not used for maybe um, you know, lower value goods such as fruits and vegetables. However, things that are very time sensitive, you know, we end up paying for paying more money but to ship them by you know FedEx and UPS and these other services. They're faster, they get their same day or next day. And they cost a lot of more, a lot more money, but they also have a lot more impact on the environment, on the climate. And so that can, that culture we have does have a big impact on the environment. And actually, a lot of these solutions we talk about in transportation are linked to behavior, right? So we want to get to the mall faster. 
we want to get to the office you know, in a much shorter time. And so we use options that we think are faster, right? And those options may be more polluting in the environment, right? So the most obvious option here is cars. We take a car to work, whereas we could have t- taken the train, we could have taken the bus. So uh, that, that's an idea that time is very important to, to the global commerce. And that brings up the idea again that transportation is an economic activity. Right, and so this culture we live in of just-in-time, as you mentioned, as instant gratification, that has an impact on the environment, that has an impact on the climate, and so that changing that behavior is a key part of reducing the impacts that we have on the environment. Absolutely, and I suppose also depends on underlying patterns of globalization. This massive increase in shipping over the last twenty years probably correlates with a increase in, in, in world trade and uh, focus on manufacturing and so forth, so-called offshoring and those you know, economic decisions. But yet the, the transport uh, and carbon dioxide implications are, are very significant. I mean, you, you mentioned um, yeah, th- th- this question of the alternatives that people have and how in time is money and you know, public transport. And I think that's, that's the, uh, one of the top three of high impact areas, transport areas. Can you talk a little bit about that, Ryan? Yes, mass transit is a very important solution. It's not a, a, a new solution, right? I mean, mass transit systems have been around for decades. They have evolved. We have become more efficient in certain ways, but sometimes less attractive. And that's something that I suppose is, is the key to, to dealing with mass transit, right? Every big city in the world needs to have mass transit. They're just as in, from, a, from a physics standpoint, from a space standpoint, it's just not possible to provide the mobility needed for millions of people living in an urban area without a very high-density option, right? That may be very high-density buses, but typically and increasingly it's very high-density trains, right? We're talking about subways and, and undergrounds. And so that is really the only option for very dense cities. Now, mass transit, it's, it takes a lot of planning, it takes a lot of management and a huge team to, man, to, to manage well, to provide a high-quality service. But mass transit, we, we already understand a lot of how mass transit works and how it can help cities. We understand that, you know, having a train line connecting very dense areas where people are traveling a lot, you know, along very high-density corridors, for instance, is very important, right? And so we understand that putting a train line to an area that is of low density may not make sense because you end up spending a lot of money, a lot of public money typically, to invest in these train lines and these very high capacity systems where they wouldn't be used. They can't expect that there's enough generation of demand for the line and so it's not going to be worth it in the long run. And so we understand that the combination of trains and buses and even now, you know, taxis, you know, we think of them as, you know, again, the Uber systems and other ride-sharing systems, for instance, incorporating them into what's considered mass transit. So the, the lower-density areas is very important. And some of the more forward-thinking mass transit operators and authorities around the world are already taking, taking this into account and, and, and creating partnerships with these companies to be able to provide better quality service. Because the idea here is that you need to attract people. Right? It's not, you can't mandate that someone uses mass transit. It has to be a service that is 
I suppose, sexy enough to attract people out of their cars, to attract them to go to work using mass transit, to use mass transit when they're taking leisurely trips, when they're going to the hospital, when they're seeing the doctor, when they're going to see friends, etc. And so to do that, you need to be a very responsive organization. And again, some cities and some countries are leading in this area, and others are not leading as quite as well and not responding quite as well. And so there's a lot of work to be done in mass transit, but that's a very important and very critical solution for getting to draw down. Yes, absolutely. And I, I know that there's some recent research which suggests that actually the level of urbanization worldwide is much, much higher than uh, recent statistics or recent uh, analysis suggested and could well be in the region of 90 percent and particularly in you know Africa and Asia. So it, clearly really important, as you say. Um, but w- what about the scale of, of change there? You know, is, is this a gradual thing or are there some some cities that, that are really having a big impact. I mean, here in London, we have the congestion zone, for example, which means that people you know, are charged to drive into the centre of the city. Um, but I'm, I'm all just wondering, the scale of change that you can expect, is this you know, a gradual kind of thing? Or, or are there examples or some maybe technologies or just ways of organising on the horizon that you think that could really have a significant uh, impact on the efficiency of, the, of these systems? Well, the efficiency of mass transit systems is already very high, right? So in terms of space efficiency, where we're thinking about how much space it takes to move people, yes. very high. In terms of energy efficiency, is very high already. I think what's, uh, what's needed for mass transit is improved management to attract. That attraction is the, thing, is the behavioral change here, because in many cities, mass transit already exists. Now, in terms of the cities where it's, the development is so rapid that mass transit needs to be significantly invested in and managed to, to keep up, basically. So you mentioned cities in Asia and in Africa, for instance. That's a very key problem, right? So the system, the infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, which is mainly mass transit, again, that exists there, uh, it's, it tends to be very limited in many cities, in many developing cities. And so that means that the, the options that travelers have are limited also, right? So an instance would be if there's no subway, because subways are quite expensive, right? So it's difficult to find them in some developing countries. However, there may be bus systems. There may be what we call bus rapid transport systems, right? Bus rapid transit, which are basically bus systems that are designed to operate sort of like trains. They're overground, but they are on dedicated roads. They make certain certain frequent stops, they can travel at higher speeds, they have very high capacity, so they approach the the service of train systems, of subway systems, but they are a lot cheaper, right? So that's one option that has been adopted rapidly, in certainly in Latin America, and increasingly, even in the north, the global north, right? So in the US, I believe in Canada, and in some parts of, of Europe. And so that's an option that has, and have great impact. Right? So in terms of adoption of, of mass transit worldwide, I think behavior, encouraging behavior is a key part of it. And how you encourage behavior is, well, you have the two sides of it. You have the carrot and the sticks, right? You have the, the what can attract persons to mass transit and what can detract 
from using uh, private vehicles, which tends to be the most common alternative. And so on the attraction side, we're looking at ensuring the quality of the service is top-notch, right? So we're talking about systems that leave when they're supposed to leave, buses that arrive when they're supposed to arrive, high-quality buses that are comfortable, that maybe people want to enter the bus, maybe integration with cell phones so you can plan your trip more accurately, and connection to locations where you want to go, right? So it shouldn't be a bus service that leaves you somewhere where you don't want to go, that's far away from your final destination, right? And so that requires a lot of design and management and proper control of the system, right? On the detraction side, we want to look at, as you said in London, things like congestion charging, things like low emission vehicle charges, right? So you get that benefit of encouraging more of electric vehicle adoption, for instance. Things like um, reducing the number of lanes for private cars, increasing the number of lanes for buses, which again has the added benefit of allowing buses to be more likely arriving on time. And so there are lots of options to balance those two sides of the of the incentivization and the disincentivization side of, of, of behavioral change. And so again, lots of things have been tried worldwide. There's a lot of, of what we call learning, a lot of knowledge out there already. It's a matter of having the political will and the commitment to invest in mass transit worldwide. Absolutely. It, it does seem to lend itself to policy in a, in a way, particularly in cities playing such an important role now. Globally, they're taking on the responsibility in many cases to deal with global warming and to come up with new strategies and to operate as linked cities and to, you know, as you say, the best practice and transfer of, of knowledge. And, and yet at the same time, so much of this is the, an area of, of great of great agency, personal agency, because these are ways in which everybody can, can you know, be part of the the solution by traveling less in in their their own car sharing cars going on mass transit these kind of things and and so it seems to be quite a good uh synergy there i guess what about oil prices um it's something that's a key impact on transport systems generally on transport falling falling oil prices um how does that uh enter your analysis and the whole question of, I guess, linked to that is the subsidies that are still there uh, for oil generally. Yeah. Oil is very important because a, a large incentive to changing your behavior is, is the cost of your existing behavior, right? And the cost of your alternative. And so the financial side is already considered a, a key metric for, for the policy, right? So, for instance, the policy of investing or providing rebates or providing um, lower costs to adopting electric vehicles, for instance, is driven by that understanding that, you know, you know, it's more expensive currently, so let's find a way to make it cheaper for, the, for early adopters at least. And then when that adoption increases, hopefully that would lead to more investment in the battery cost, for instance, lower cost, and therefore parity, which does not require financial incentives, right? So the cost is very important. And so when you think about the price of oil, that's a key factor in individual decision-making process, right? So many research studies have looked at what we call the total cost of ownership, right? Which goes back to that idea we discussed earlier of the total amount of emissions, right? So we're looking at the cost from 
from the purchasing side, the cost of the, the actual vehicle, right, to so the first cost, the cost of operating the vehicle during its lifetime, including maintenance and other fixed costs such as insurance, and then the cost of disposal at the end, which might be a negative cost effectively because you might be able to sell your vehicle at the end, you know, towards the end of life and make some money rather than pay money as disposal. And so the total cost is significantly affected by the price of oil and price of fuel. And so if we look at what the impact of a drop in fuel price would be, it would be to disincentivize changing your behavior from a conventional vehicle, from using a conventional vehicle, right? So to counteract that, you know, you might need to have other actions, other policy actions taken by states or, or you may need to have the acceptance that it's going to be a smaller market adopting, say, electric vehicles for a period of time until that price, that price of oil, returns again, you know, and so that's a that's a key input, that's a key factor. So in terms of our modeling, we looked at the prices of the vehicles, but we did not include the specific price of oil because it's quite difficult to predict what that would be in time. Right? So there are a lot of factors that affect that. And we didn't want to stake the, the modeling research on predicting a price of oil forward to 2050. Because our analysis period here looked at 2020 to 2050. And so it would be it would be a bit tenuous, quite tenuous actually, to, to stick the analysis on that. So what we decided to do is look at price of oil as it is in the 10-year period prior to our base year, which is 2014. We use that for actually all of our energy prices, all of the commodity prices used in the model. And then we looked at the projection of adoptions, which assumed those prices, right? So we didn't, again, look at the potential for a price drop or a price increase, but we think of that as a sensitivity analysis, which we can do, and which is part of the second stage of our work. Fascinating. Very interesting. Now, just before you go, if I could just briefly speak to you about airplanes and flying, um, because as you say, um, I think this is uh, very driven by levels of wealth and uh, the wealthiest people fly more. And um, I know there is various initiatives, various groups, academics as well, uh, involved in dealing with uh, global warming, climate change, who are drawing attention to these experts flying to conferences all around the world. There was quite a high-profile virtual uh, climate conference recently. Um, This matters, doesn't it? Certainly, certainly. It's an interesting problem because aviation, like flying, individual flying, really has few options over certain distances, right? So if you're looking at, for instance, transatlantic travel, then you have no option except to fly, right? You have no option for actually having a face-to-face meeting, I should say, instead of flying. And why I say that is because there are options for having meetings, right? So we can have a meeting over the internet, which is very easy these days using tools that are widely available for free. And so the idea of flying, while it's still important for meetings that must be face-to-face, is not necessary for all meetings. It's not necessary for all trips. It's not necessary for... Certain shifts, especially the ones that are on the topic of climate change, right? So that's something that requires a cultural change, I think, to understand that it's possible to achieve your aims without having to encourage the same 
emissions problem that you're trying to reduce, you're trying to reverse. So that cultural change requires uh, a difference in thinking. Um, one of our model solutions was actually telepresence, which is basically avoiding flying and using high quality uh, online meeting systems. There are certain options that can improve air travel itself. We talk about them in our product drawdown work, such as improving the aerodynamic design of aircraft. And some of these options are actually retrofit, uh, retrofit possible, right? So you can add on wing tips, for instance, or wing tip devices to aircraft to have them reduce the efficient, reduce the fuel consumption by three, four, five percent, right? Which is excellent. However, that's not possible for all aircraft, and that doesn't really take us as far as we need to go, because aircraft, again, are still significant in the emissions that they produce. One major option that has been put forward and is being actively researched is using a different type of fuel altogether, and this is biofuel. So instead of extracting oil from the ground after millions of years of compression and natural processes, we're taking plants that we can grow in certain areas and process them to turn them into fuel, right? So when we do that, of course, we know plants can absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and so effectively we're creating a cyclical process of creating fuel and using fuel, which is, which is great, right? It sounds like that's a gold standard. It sounds like that's what you want to do. Grow your fuel, use it, so you end up growing the fuel, absorbing carbon dioxide from the air, then you use the fuel and you release that same carbon dioxide into the air. So it's it's net zero. The problem with that, however, and the problem with biofuels is that most of the biofuels currently, they compete with food supply, right? Because we're talking about growing plants on land that could be used for food. And when we do that, we have created a conflict. Do we fly or do we eat? Right? And that's the problem. Now, the new generation of biofuels are grown on land that is marginal, that is land that is not fit growing crops, or using waste materials. Or even a third generation which uses um, basically algae, right, to create fuel. So these technologies are currently still developing, so they aren't at a stage where we could have included them in our solution set or project drawdown, but they are something that we expect in the future would have a huge impact on aviation, right? So we're looking forward to that. But currently, biofuels are in a very early stage of development, but they're considered basically the saving grace for the aviation industry. Yes, yes. Well, that's been fascinating, Ryan, to get your perspective on these uh, important questions. These are uh, places where the individuals, we can all play our part as well. And there does seem to be some uh, tremendous momentum. Thank you so much for taking the time today. And I wish you the very best of success with your ongoing work. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play.